кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. Russian forces seek to consolidate their hold on the Donbass region and launch air and missile strikes across Ukraine. NATO formally invites Sweden and Finland to join the alliance, announces the expansion of its rapid force, and unveils a new strategy to confront Moscow. U.S. President Joe Biden says the United States will station permanent forces on NATO's eastern flank, and this all comes a week after the European Union officially made Ukraine a candidate for membership. Russia's war of aggression and choice in Ukraine has moved into its fifth month with no end in sight. It's already reshaped global politics and restructured European security. So what happens next? Well, stick around. We got just the guests to help us unpack the big picture. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is veteran Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy of Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me back. Good, good to have you back. You're always welcome. You you recently said something that, that resonated pretty strongly with me. Um, and I want to kind of unpack it a little bit going forward here. The what you said the West is fighting one war, and Russia is fighting another war entirely. Um, can you explain what you mean by this and what its implications are for the benefits of our listeners? Because this does ring true uh, to me as well. Although at every opportunity, um, NATO Secretary General states and reiterates that NATO is not a direct protagonist in the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine for the West is the uh, is what has caused what many have referred to as the greatest crisis we have seen in Europe, the greatest security crisis and the greatest set of threats we've seen in Europe since the Cold War ended. So it's the centerpiece of our preoccupations. And um, in looking at that, The alliance and the United States in particular is understandably concerned about the risk of the war uh, expanding geographically, but also escalating to more dangerous categories of weapons. Uh, the, the word nuclear is used quite often. And so uh, Ukraine is seen at the center, and the concern then is how to protect the alliance. Now, if you start from Russia's perspective, um, my view about Russia's perspective, incidentally, has been reflected, um, not that he's quoting me, uh, but it's been stated in a very complimentary way, in a very similar way, by uh, Dmitry Trenin, formerly mm -hmm. of the Carnegie Center in Moscow before it was dissolved. And uh, in a very interesting article 
in a, a very authoritative establishment journal called Russia in Global Affairs. And what he is, what he's presented, in my judgment, as a long-standing Ukrainian watcher, is the real view of the Russian state. And to someone like me, who you call a veteran Russia watcher, what he says is not surprising, but what's useful about it is that he puts all of this in one place in a very clear um, and compelling and categorical fashion. And his premise, and I think Russia's premise, is that Russia is involved in what Ukraine calls a total war against the West. And of course, we all know, and any Russian knows, Ukraine is absolutely central importance to Russia's own identity. But in this context, Ukraine has an instrumental importance because it has been turned into the gravest threat Russia faces from a hostile West that is determined to destroy Russia. And so it is the war with the West, which is the centerpiece of Russia's thinking. And he says the war, of course, is hybrid, which means some very unpleasant and disturbing things, by the way. It doesn't necessarily mean gentle, but it is not yet an overt kinetic conflict in the NATO area that we know. But, you know, we should be clear about this basic difference. And one reason, therefore, that it is urgent from Russia's standpoint to achieve an absolutely conclusive victory in Ukraine and as quickly as possible is to deliver a, a body blow, a deeply painful blow against the West as a whole. And that is a precondition for proceeding further uh, to wage this war with the West, which is fundamentally a war about replacing what the Russians call either the hegemonic or the America-centric international order uh, with something fundamentally different. That's, that's the major difference um, in understanding we have about what's taking place. So there's an asymmetry here. Um, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying from the West perspective, this is a serious security threat. It's the center of our security agenda. But there's this fear of the risk of escalation um, and metastasization of, of the conflict beyond Ukraine, uh, where Russia is fighting a total war against the West already. For Russia, the conflict has already escalated and metastasized. Is it, would, would I be correct in, in, in assuming that? The uh, conflict with the West has predated it, but it has risen in significance, in scope and scale, mm -hmm. intensity, also in venom. Mm -hmm. uh, says, given the nature of the conflict and the protagonists, um, any sort of meaningful or serious dialogue or compromise is ruled out. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. And Russia's strategy, therefore, has to change. Uh, because as Russia liked to present its strategy in the past, it was built upon um, an absolute defense of Russia's core interests on the one hand, which proceed beyond Ukraine to its entire periphery, um, mm -hmm. its, or what used to be called its near abroad, and um, getting the West by various means to recognize and accept those interests as legitimate. Um, but where it's also balanced by 
uh, Russia sought to balance this by respect for certain what it regarded as legitimate Western interests in certain areas, cooperation, and so on. Things is that Russian strategy no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So it's total war. And I'm, it's interesting that this was articulated by Trainin. As you mentioned, Trainin's a very, very interesting character. Um, there was a time when he was viewed as a kind of a pro Western commentator in Moscow. I always saw him as a former intelligence officer. I mean, I always saw him as somebody whose job it was to present the reasonable face of Russia to the West. And if this is what Trainin is saying now, um, that tells you a lot about where Russia is now, because you seem to now see him as a good barometer of the Kremlin's thinking. Am I correct? Yes, uh, he's done this once or twice before. Uh, usually, when training writes, whatever, he's always writing with purpose, but he mm-hmm. has um, his own uh, beguiling personal style. Trying to make, as you were saying a second ago, the Russian message palatable to reasonable mainstream people in the West. Now, once or twice, he's done something else. He's presented in arctically clear language, sort of chiseled language without qualification. Um, a uh, a real a, a, a blueprint of what of how Russia sees things, and. You could see this immediately here. You could see it in the tone and all the cadences and the words he uses and the whole structure and all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we see this reflected, I mean, across the elite in different ways. I mean, people like Dmitry Medvedev, who used to be considered a liberal, is now making the most the most bellicose statements possible, even more bellicose than, than Putin himself. But going back to Russia's actual goals here, you say it's a total war against the West. A total victory is the only acceptable solution. Now, in that world, gaining control of the Donbass isn't really going to cut it, is it? No, but that's not what this is about. Okay, that's the... Okay, because, I mean, he makes it clear. This entire anti-Russia project in Ukraine, and Putin has said this as well, um, it is this whole anti-Russia project that must be defeated. It is what um, you know, the Russians consistently call the denazification and demilitarization right. of Ukraine. The nazification of Ukraine is um, uh, what it means. It's code for perverse, uh, perverse long-term effort by the West to transform Ukraine into something else. Dmitry Rogozin, um, who is, um, I mean, unlike Ukrainian, not an analyst, but has been a significant, very colorful um, political right. figure over the years. He recently, I think very revealingly, used the expression in talking about Ukraine, he spoke about what used to be Ukraine. Mm-hmm. This is no longer Ukraine. This is something created in the Western image. A lot of, you know, a certain number of uh, Westerners quite reasonably think, well, now that the Russians see the Ukrainians are so united, and by the way, 87% of them are still adamantly opposed to any kind of territorial compromise with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're so united, they've been fighting so well, if they've been making such sacrifices, surely this must make the Russians rethink their assumptions. No, it doesn't. From the perspectives that Putin has outlined and others have outlined, no, it confirms them. That, in other words, the Russians don't see themselves as fighting Ukrainian armed forces in Ukraine, but what NATO has created 
a replica NATO armed force in Ukraine. And therefore, there's a chorus behind this saying, thank God we acted now, because if we didn't, these people would have become lethal enough to attack Russia, which is exactly what the West wanted. Right, which is so, absurd, of course. But <laughs> uh, So, and then, you know, the demilitarization. Now, all this has been completely spelt out. And by the way, even today, uh, Putin said again, our, uh, the only thing we are insisted upon is recognition of um, the independence of Donbass. Well, he's, he's talking in the most blatant way out of two sides of his mouth, because it, by the same token, over many weeks now, they have been trying to prepare Birjansk uh, and Donetsk, which are outside the Donbass. Um, to foster their, their uh, they wouldn't use the word annexation, their accession to Russia. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's no question what the Russians want to do, and Putin made this clear in his own article um, last July, almost a year ago, uh, that the only Ukraine that Russia will accept is one that ties itself to Russia and any Ukraine that doesn't do that, that insists upon what it always has insisted upon, uh, its ability and freedom to make its own choices, to chart its own path. This is, from Russia's standpoint, an anti-Russia, and this will never be accepted. And back in July 2021, Putin warned, we will not accept it. So how do we get from point A to point B? As we are talking, as we're recording this podcast, um, Russia is fighting to get control of the Donbass. It seems to have its hands full in accomplishing that, what you see as an interim goal. And I, I tend to agree with you that that's an interim goal. Um, what, what's next once they well, achieve that interim goal? Next, can I just add one other dimension to this? Mm -hmm. Because uh, Canadian also states that what we're talking about in this total war is total economic war. Mm -hmm. So... In the West, you have all sorts of arguments taking place about the whys and the wherefores of Russia's decision to cut all gas supplies to Europe, the blockade in the Black Sea, um, the prevention of Ukrainian foodstuffs from being exported. Uh, from the perspective of total economic war, and it's even again explicitly spelled out in Ukrainian's article, uh, these are not collateral effects of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They are not collateral effects of the war. These are dimensions of it. Mm -hmm. They are very deliberate. And even refers to, you know, the, the utilization of foodstuffs and the energy sector to prosecute the war. He also goes on to say uh, the, to work with our situational allies in the West to damage the West, to change internal conditions in the West in a way it is to Russia's advantage. Mm -hmm. All of this is part of it. Uh, its whole economic dimension, uh, the social and cultural dimension, all of it, that's what he means by, that's the hybrid right. aspects of this. So all of this is going on at once, isn't it? Yes, and, uh, and, and that, that aspect is certainly worrisome. But the, this is all contingent on Russia getting control of Ukraine, of either subjugating or destroying Ukraine. 
And this is where I'm what what I think a lot of us are wondering right now as we're watching this is the assumption is Russia is going to get control of the Donbass that that the writing seems to be on the wall for the time being, at least until the more advanced Western weapons get to the front on the Ukrainian side. What happens next? What happens next? Do we see a push west uh, toward Dnipro and Zaporizhia and or uh, in along the seacoast toward Odessa, like a lot of people um, are assuming? Or do do we see the conflict temporarily frozen so Russia can regroup its forces and remount its original uh, plan of, of seizing Kiev and, and, and enacting regime change? What do you? I know we don't we don't have a crystal ball here, but what do you what do you see the likely scenarios after? The, uh, after the Donbass is completely in Russia's control. I, I, um, I am far from persuaded that all of Donbass will end up in Russia's control for okay. that long. All right. The question you always have to ask about these things is for how long? But, you know, bear in mind, let me add an element uh, to your question, which partially answers it. The Russians are plainly hoping and again, you can look at this in the context of the bigger picture, that the West, which is bearing its own share of costs and which are likely to get worse when you include the energy aspect and everything else, that Western publics will drive Western governments or their successors to then force Ukraine right. to come to the table. Um, and to conclude uh, a deeply unsound peace, which of course will not be a peace. So uh, there is very much an expectation in Russia that um, if they carry on as they are in the wider war, uh, this will happen. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that is very much in the balance. Uh, some of your uh, listeners, um, probably not many, will know who I mean by the Ukrainian expert Hanna Shelles, who recently made a very important point. She said, we have no fear inside Ukraine that we Ukrainians will stop fighting. We won't. Our fear is that the West will make us stop fighting. Mm. And the reality is, and of course the Russians understand this better than anyone, Ukraine is deeply dependent on the West. It's dependent on the West for sufficient support to maintain the macroeconomic conditions that enable the rest of the economy to function in uh, an orderly and, um, and halfway normal fashion. It's critically dependent, as you were saying earlier, on supplies of weapons, munitions, training, resource-getting intelligence support. It's dependent on all of this. It means that the political will to maintain that, leave aside what additional things that might need to be done, but to maintain what we're doing now, the political will has to be there, and it means public support has to be there. And uh, we can't just assume that it's all going to be there. Now, I think there is a critical, there is a direct relationship between how the war is proceeding on the ground and the political factor in the West. Mm. No question. If um, the, um, the critical centers of opinion in the West perceive that not only is the war winnable for Ukraine, but that 
um, Russia is reaching its peak and things are once again turning in Ukraine's favor, then it becomes politically much more realistic to continue doing what we're doing. But right. if a critical mass of people um, conclude this is all for not for naught, there's no way Ukraine could possibly win this, that Ukraine is going to go from bad to worse, that we better intervene now and put a stop to all of this before there's just an uncontrollable mess, uh, then everything is going to start to turn around. And so all of these things are interconnected. You can't just look at one. Right. Okay. Now, coming back to the military issue you raised, again, let me introduce a point of context. Um, for whatever reason, I have my own views as to why it happened, and others will have theirs. For whatever reason, the Russians at the beginning, when they started to say what was then called a special military operation, um, they took the completely harebrained decision to launch a series of mini blitzkrieg tactical level operations against an opponent, Ukraine, which is tactically far superior to the Russians. I mean, every Ukrainian understands that battalion to battalion, there's no contest between Ukraine's forces and Russia's forces. And what the lesson that's been learned from the defeat of uh, these offensives um, north of Kiev and elsewhere, uh, is enforcing Russia, in my view, to rediscover and rejuvenate its classic strengths, which are at the larger operational scales. And for whatever reason, Ukraine, Ukraine had some of this itself in the Soviet era. For whatever reasons, Ukraine has lost those. And so that is what they're doing now. And if you sort of put this in a textbook term, if you have, on the one side, the gladiators are structured. And imagine that they are far better off than the gladiators of Spartacus were. And on the other side, you have the Roman legion. And imagine, if you will, that the Roman legions were far more poorly equipped than they actually were, and that morale is terrible, and there's corruption, and God knows what else. Um, if, you look at, if you look at major wars in the 20th century, Nevertheless, the, the protagonist that is the master of the operational level will, admittedly at great cost and possibly very slowly, win a war against uh, the gladiators of Spartacus. Um, and that has been what we've been looking at in Donbass for a while. But here's a question, because this might be the war that actually um, is either the exception to that paradigm or partially refutes it. Um, only partially refutes it because Ukraine is, I think, acquiring certain operational level of strengths of its own. What's critical, I think, now in the military conflict, what must be done, is to enable the Ukrainians to stabilize the front and by time to enable uh, the weapon systems it requires to be deployed in, in, in quantity. Um, and by the way, although they are 
are now being deployed in very small quantities, you can see that they're already beginning to make some real differences. Mm. Uh, and uh, they must be rather unnerving to the Russians. Strikes recently on Russian ammunition uh, storage sites, uh, right. a whole range of things, which are becoming possible only because Ukraine now has longer range equipment. This is a, I, I know we all like to focus on political restraints that the West, with Biden particularly, is imposing on what can and cannot be delivered. But again, put that in a broader context. Ukraine started this war with um, basically upgraded Soviet weaponry, right. weaponry based on this sort of Soviet paradigm, and they had been supplied by NATO allies that were formerly in the Warsaw Pact with surplus stocks of this and surplus stocks of that. They pretty much exhausted that. And now Ukraine has to make a transition to a Western system. Modern Western systems, yes, of course, they're vastly more capable, but they use different caliber ammunition, they work differently, and um, good as the Ukrainians are at um, you know, being quick studies and learning things very quickly, this takes a lot of time, and that's why it is necessarily a slow process. Now, I am still persuaded that in this conflict, time favors the Ukrainians. Mm if you can get them the time. And that is the real challenge that the Pentagon faces. I think Lloyd Austin knows this. And it is doable and winnable. And I think we're beginning to see modest signs of this now. And the best thing about it, as I said a moment ago, is Ukrainians themselves are not willing to give up. Now, there are some horrible handicaps. Ukraine has lost an alarming proportion of its most seasoned and expert forces. And therefore, they are they're training up a lot of new people. And they did not make adequate preparation to any of this beforehand. This is all being done from scratch. Mm. But it's being done. Uh, so this is, and again, going back to the point I was questioning you were making about, you know, Russia's going to get all of Donbass. Uh, this is all in, this is all a contest now. This is all in question. And if the Russians are stopped and the Ukrainians are in a position to be able to start counterattacking, then... Um, Apart from desperate measures, I am not exactly sure what options the Russians have. One other factor, one reason the Russians have got to bounce in a sluggish way in Donbass is that they mobilize some of the nastiest and most experienced people on the planet, like the so-called private military company uh, Wagner. Wagner. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Kabyrov's Chechens. Um, well, these people are now starting to be killed in large numbers. What do you have behind that? Uh, un- conscripts, yeah. Untrained, uh, unmotivated people. Who are some of, most of them are not even conscripted yet. Uh, 
People keep talking about, well, Russia will switch over to general national mobilization. I'm not sure they can. Mm. I mean, one reason for this is that the great modernizer, the defense minister prior to Shoigu, Sergeyev, uh, a part of his modernization, uh, which was trying to reorientate the army to fighting small wars and regional wars, uh, a lot of this Soviet hangover, this national mobilization system, just eroded or disappeared and just chopped away. So the administrative resources to do all this are considerable, and a lot of them aren't there. Mm. Um, and although in many ways Russia is has been proceeding, I think, since the war and before then, from an authoritarian state back to a form of totalitarian state, it doesn't mean that there are administrative resources uh, for doing things of this nature are what they need to be. Uh, so, you know, there's a there are a lot of pluses and minuses here. This is very much um, a contest. This is all in play now. And if I hear you correctly, James, what I what, what I hear you saying now is the, the the difficulties Ukraine is experiencing in the Donbass and what appear to be the, the the series of Russian victories in the Donbass are a result of Ukraine going through this transition from the Soviet stock weaponry to the more advanced NATO weapons and basically replenishing its 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 forces that were lost in the first part of the war. And if they can get to the other side of that hill, so to speak. Um, then then time is on their side. So this is a crucial moment right now where the West support cannot ease at all. Am I, is that what I'm hearing you say? In part, I think there are other reasons why Ukraine has been disadvantaged in this type of war. Again, it's operational scale war, and that's not been the kind of war they've been selling at or used to. Uh, the, but yes, uh, you know, basically we get to the, the conclusion of your remark, that's exactly where we are. And I think um, as long as we are focused, not on stopping the war and having a ceasefire, having some sort of a uh, you know, provisional settlement, which is only going to widen it, but if we are firmly focused on Ukraine winning and Russian the Russian army and hence Russia being defeated. We can do this, but it is going to take time. And I, I mean, just as we're recording this today, uh, Ukraine racked up a very surprising victory, taking control of Snake Island in the Black Sea. Don't, this is, they don't have anyone on the ground there. They just got the Russians to leave. Got the Russians to leave, yeah. Um, is, is that a sign that the tide may be turning back, or is, that, is this an outlier? This is as far as I understand, and I haven't read the small print, um, you know, other evidence of the effectiveness of new weapon systems that have been arriving. Uh, you know, the shore-based uh, uh, missile systems, in this case, mm -hmm. striking an island that have also been used to strike Russian ships. Uh, so all of these things, I, I believe, will start to make a difference and give Ukraine time it needs to train up, to train up its forces, to take stock, to draw lessons, to redeploy forces, all of these things. Um, and, I, you know, I, um, 
I've been very disappointed and not talk and not said anything about uh, how different this would have been had um, uh, these measures and these steps by the West been taken in some much earlier when some of us insisted they be taken. Uh, because these forces would all be trained up by right. All right. Yeah, we'd be looking at a very different war if that if that had been the case. We would be. Yes. Uh, there is an assumption you see out there is still unshakable, I think, in much of the West. It's really a reflection of who we are and how we look at things. There is somehow this belief, and this gets back to training again, that because war is very dangerous, we somehow have to restrain ourselves, not to provoke yeah. doing dangerous things. Now, training in this article makes a point, which of course has been made again and again and again, by Russian and Soviet military scientists going back a very, very long way, is the, the dangers of escalation necessitate achieving your objectives as decisively as, decisively as possible. The that particularly under the threat of escalation, the imperative is extremely strong to impose constraints on the opponent. You will not see in all this literature and discussion or practice going yeah. back ever in Russian history any discussion about, oh, this requires us to restrain ourselves. Right. But it is just taken for granted in uh, much of Washington and in a large part of the Oval Office that, uh, you know, this is what it's called for. And therefore saying, well, if we limit the range of these weapons to Ukraine, if we limit that type of weapon and all the rest of it, this will help keep the war, uh, this will help keep the war restrained. It's totally irrelevant. It's just an own goal. It has no impact on what the Russians do or think. The Russians will utilize any weapon systems or combination of weapon system or other means of conflict that they consider effective to achieve their objectives. It's totally right. true. And if you want to stop it, you have to stop it. Right. And I want to drill deeper into what is driving the West. Um, there's a lot of different factors at play in the second half. But to segue to that and to wrap up, kind of put a bow on, the, on this first half of the discussion, what are the costs? I mean, what is at stake here for the West? I mean, paint, you've painted this in the past in very stark terms. Um, I tend to agree with you on this. Uh, for our listeners, could you paint the, the costs of defeat for the West? Well, there are so many. I mean, first of all, if you are regarding this already as a total war against the West, and if you can see if it's clear that winning for Russia, winning in Ukraine is a precondition for pursuing that war, it means that our positions would be under challenge across the board. Um, let me give you an analogy, a historical analogy. The Cost borne by the Soviet Union as a result of its victory in the so-called Great Patriotic War were a whole different order of magnitude from the cost that Russia is enduring now. I mean, almost half the country, you know, the world were living in holes in the ground. We lost 27 million dead. Now, none of the re-established democracies of Western Europe thought, oh, well, they're going to have their internal problems for a long time. We don't need to worry so much. They were afraid. And they were right to be afraid. As Stalin said, victory is everything. Victors are not judged. If 
Russia wins this, first of all, the Putin regime, Putin system is going to get stronger, not weaker. Let's be clear about that. Um, regime change occurs in Russia. Regimes are under threat in Russia when they start an external war, especially one they're expecting to win, and they lose it. That's how you bring about change inside Russia. They win, they get stronger. Everybody inside the country knows we have the right leadership. The sacrifices have been worth it. This will be presented in Russia as their greatest victory since 1945. I have no doubt about it. And one thing they're expert at doing, this um, Putin and company, this, um, you know, if we want this state leadership this elite, they are experts at doing two things. One is generating threats and the other is generating fear. And they will certainly be generating a lot of fear uh, on their periphery. And bear in mind a rather impressive proportion of residents of Estonia still have Russian passports, same mm -hmm. as Latvia. Uh, that suggests that Prima Fascia, they still have some kind of loyalty to Russia. There are the relevant people have their hands full monitoring Russian activity now in the Baltic states. And he understood their diversionary brigades and what they do. Um, there is, uh, so a victory would immediately have very powerful reverberations across the entire area here. Across uh, the entire there, European security yeah, market. But also the other key players in the world, Turkey, China, Iran, the West invested 30 years in Ukraine, and look, it's ended up with nothing. Another huge disaster, bigger than Afghanistan, bigger than anything else. We might not like Russia. The Russians are very fond of saying this. You might not like Russia, but you will find yourself obliged to be friends with Russia. Mm -hmm. And this lesson will be understood by everyone. So, we have that whole issue. And then think of what the domestic repercussions will be in the West. All these ordinary people, consumers, people with careers, people with medical bills or energy bills, all the rest of it. Then discover they've made all these sacrifices. And it's been for naught. The West going to be more cohesive? I'll tell you one thing. Sanctions will not survive. There might be Pollyannish people running about now saying, Oh, let Russia win its war because the Russian economy will be in deep trouble and we'll still we'll still maintain our sanctions until there is a process underway that uh, restores Ukraine's sovereignty. They won't be able to maintain the sanctions. They'll start to erode from day one. Mm. But wherever you look, the balance is going to shift. Um, I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, uh, go back a notch. In the opening stages of the war, when Ukraine was achieving these astonishing, dramatic victories and Russian armed, Russian forces were humiliated, who was unsettled most in the world? The Chinese. China up to then just as took for granted and its whole its whole outlook on the world. Uh, um, you know, rests in part on certain ingredients, and one of them, one of the components 
uh, for China, which factors into Chinese policy, is that yes, Russia is a junior partner, and it's going to be more dependent on us in the future rather than less. But Russia is and will remain, and we want it to remain, a great and in some ways global power and a stable one. And in the outside of this war, suddenly all these certainties were in doubt, and the Chinese were unsettled. And that made very much contrary to the forecast of all these people who said, oh, we should park Russia and focus on China. That, you know, the obvious conclusion was what we, the Chinese, have to do is park the military option in Taiwan, at least for a while, until we can figure out where this leads us. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine instead that the Russians fully recovered, go on to destroy Ukraine's armed forces in the West, obliges the Ukrainians to sue for peace. And of course, Ukraine will then be completely destabilized because then we do not forget the overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian population want to keep fighting. So, um, Volodymyr Zelensky or anyone else who runs Ukraine understands perfectly well the day I agree to sit down and conclude peace with Russia is the last day on my job. I can't see a single area where uh, a Russian victory will not benefit the very worst people. You're, um, in- interestingly, forcing me to rethink some, uh, some of the assumptions I was going into this with, because I was assuming that what is being decided in Ukraine is where the front line in the new Cold War is going to be drawn. Is it going to be drawn along Ukraine's eastern border with Ukraine in the west? Is it going to be drawn along Ukraine's western border with Ukraine in the east? Or is it going to be, is Ukraine going to be somehow partitioned to become the new east and west Germany? What you're saying is a Russian victory in Ukraine basically is not going to lead to a new Cold War. It's going to basically destroy the western liberal system. Well, that's the whole point. That's why Kremlin says Russia's waging a total war or be in hybrid. The front line goes through every American city. Right. The front line here, there's no real distinction in a sense anymore between front and rear. This is, I mean, this is at least the way the Russians are thinking about it. And if they win, it becomes a much more, then there's far more reason to think in this way than if they lose. Right. Right. You want to preserve the West's cohesion. You have to give enough of the West good news. And that's a good way to segue into the second half, where I do want to talk a bit about the West and, and everything that is driving our behavior. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears to look at the calculations, fears, and aspirations that are driving the Western response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is veteran Russian washer James Sher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the, the International Center for Defense and Security. 
James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Harvard Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гоним вас. С новым веком. So on one hand, the Western response to Russia's aggression has exceeded all of my expectations. NATO is enlarging to include Finland and Sweden. It's beefing up its eastern flank, and it's enlarging its rapid response force from 40,000 to 300,000 troops. The West has also implemented its toughest sanctions regime yet. Nord Stream 2 is dead. Russian energy is being boycotted. A swift ban is in place, and export controls against Moscow are being enforced. Tens of billions of dollars in defense assistance is flowing to Ukraine, including the most advanced Western weapons. And, oh, by the way, Ukraine's been made a candidate for EU membership. And yet, and yet, like muscle memory, we continue to have these calls for off-ramps. We continue to have appeals for Ukraine to sue for peace. We continue to have fears that Western assistance will provoke Moscow and lead to escalation. Western governments continue to resist calls to designate Putin's Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. James, how do you understand this somewhat schizophrenic response and the factors driving it? Is there an under is 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 there is there an understanding of how high the stakes are in Western capital? Because I think there are. Um, and how great is this risk of fatigue? I mean, I I'm just disturbed by what we keep engaging in what our mutual friend General Ben Hodges calls self-deterrence. Um, in, in some respects, the learning curve in the West still advances very slowly. Bear in mind, it's been a couple of generations now since we had a real adversary. Yep. Remember something a former professor of mine, Sir Michael Howard in Oxford, once said, the problem with liberals is that they can never accept that there is really an enemy. What we had after the Cold War was over, we went through a whole progression of new security challenges. You remember, soft security challenges, humanitarian intervention, uh, global war on terrorism. When the Baltic states were admitted to NATO, you would hardly have found anyone who still believed that military force would be or could still be an instrument of policy in Europe. That's one reason it seemed safe to admit us, the place I'm living in, into NATO. Counterfactual, hypothetical. Supposing the Russia-Georgia war occurred first, would the Baltic states have then been invited into NATO? I'm not sure. But we, we basically, you know, we've had two generations of elites now who were educated and brought up to believe those times are over. We don't have adversaries. We have 
competitors. You still find this word competitor throughout the, the 2022, the new 2022 uh, NATO uh, strategic concept that was just approved right. um, yesterday or the day before. Um, and before that, we have problematic partners. So we have partners. Uh, at least when Putin used to call the West, talk about our Western partners, he always did this with, uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a snide tone, uh, acidic tone. Um, so we've had two generations where people of people, at least of elites, who have totally been disconnected from the basics of defense, security, and war fighting. It's very interesting. You look at the 2010 NATO strategic concept, where it says no country is our, we regard no country as our adversary. In 2022, that that sentence is not there. But mm -hmm. there's another sentence that also is not there, that Russia is an adversary. It's not stated. People are afraid to say it. People aren't afraid to say it, though it's self-evident. Um, the what Therefore, what we've had, therefore, are people brought up inside a crisis management paradigm. And if you're dealing with crisis management, yes, at the end, you have your political objectives and you want what you want, but you want the other side to be happy as well. So uh, what you need in the end is an outcome that gets secures the other side's consent. Mm -hmm. The problem we faced here in the run-up to this war is that that crisis management paradigm is still extremely entrenched. You go back to Biden's speeches in 2021 about agreeing with the Russians, uh, setting up guardrails, rules of the road we would all agree to live by. Uh, this is the real motivation. How do we structure things to uh, protect democracy, but maintain good relations with them as well. And therefore, people in this paradigm, as soon as something goes wrong, and we saw it in 2014, by the way, the first response is off-ramp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it, is, it is muscle memory, as I characterized it. It's, it it's basically is. muscle memory from this paradigm. There was, probably still is, I just lost touch with him, uh, a, a wonderful authority on the war in the Balkans named Charles King, who's probably still a university professor somewhere, who said at the height of the war in Bosnia, uh, the exit strategy has become the mission. Mm -hmm. So I think that until this war started, and for some people even now, the off-ramp has become the mission. Right. And that's why so many people are afraid to use the word defeat. I applauded privately when Finally, one day, uh, Jan Stoltenberg used the word defeat. Russia should, has to be defeated. This has been very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I, I suggested to a European foreign minister who took my suggestion when he went to Kiev and he gave a speech that he should say this was well before the war started. Ukraine has a right to defend himself, itself. He did say that. The consequence was, I won't mention the country's concern, two major foreign ministries, two major NATO countries said to him, don't you think you were being a bit radical? <laughs> no, no. Uh, now, given that's where we started from, only 
a, a couple of months ago, I think the learning curve is advanced, but there's so much more right. distance it has to travel. And then we have another problem. And I, I'm asking a very innocent uh, but inconvenient question. What has happened to NATO's strategy of flexible response? Of course, literally it was replaced. But what is our doctrine, so to speak, about the nuclear weapon and how it is integrated with other weapons in deterring war and in defense? And flexible response was very clear. We will develop an adequacy of non-nuclear weapons to deal with non-nuclear responses. But from the beginning, the our nuclear capabilities much must be such to persuade an aggressor. You cannot start a war with NATO uh, comfortable in the assurance that it's going to remain limited and remain the war you want to fight. That there is an escalatory ladder mm -hmm. built into our entire way of thinking and our force structure. And by the way, it took five years of argument inside NATO to get compromises to work this out. What has happened to it? You don't see in these last two NATO strategies any real discussion of where the nuclear weapon comes in, except, you know, even the latest strategy says. If Russia employs a nuclear weapon, the consequences you know, will be very serious. What if they don't employ a nuclear weapon? Are we saying we agree that um, the Baltic states or Poland or Romania ought to be one as long as it's done nice and fairly by conventional means? And then there's something else. When the president, your president, says, be in no doubt, we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Well, that sounds wonderful if we can do it. But it begs a question, doesn't it? It suggests that that's all we're going to do. We're just going to defend our territory. Russia decides to start a war here, and we'll fight it here. How obliging. When, when we had the Soviet Union as an adversary, it was absolutely clear. You start a war, it's not going to remain here. We will attack you to the whole depth of your military system. War is, you know, a war against any member of NATO is war against all of NATO, and a war against NATO is World War Three. being no doubt about it. Who is saying this now? Who is willing to even discuss it? Where do you see a public discussion on these points taking place? I hope they're happening privately. Uh, I, I know that. I, I, I know in the States and I know in the UK, they are happening privately. Why such terrible inhibition? They happen publicly before, and if it's private, what about the political level in NATO countries who are the ones who make the decision? It's not the, the military commanders and it's not the experts advising X or Y or Z. It's the political decision makers. Has uh, anyone talked to them about these matters? There's a whole, there is a whole, um, a tradition of thinking about war and deterring war that we've forgotten. Mm -hmm. Of course, and, it has, and we're and we're slowly relearning, as you said. The, 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 I the, hope so. At times, I think we're not. It depends who we mean. 
who the we is. Mm. You mentioned the West a moment ago. I mean, uh, Putin was right. Years ago, he posed the rhetorical question, what is the West? Now, here's another huge problem. The real divide in what the Russians like to call the collective West, which I always say headed by Vaglavia Sasha, headed by the United States, um, is the divide between those countries, like the one I'm sitting in, that share a fund of historical experience with the Ukrainians and therefore empathize with us and know exactly what's happening and know what it means and have a sense of what it means for this adversary to occupy you and to feel victorious. And the other half of Europe that merely sympathizes, that's appalled by the atrocities and everything else, but has no understanding, no historical understanding of what it means to be part of Russia's historical zone of interests. This is a historical, um, and it's not just cultural, cognitive difference in thinking. It sounds to me like I, I heard you recently say the only thing that's going to change Russia is a revolution of the mind. It sounds like you think we need something of a revolution of the mind in the West as well to, to prepare us to deal with this long war that we're going to be engaged in with Russia. Long, I mean, Cold War is, I mean, is an overused term, but I think it is actually appropriate here. We are moving back into that kind of a paradigm and just we're not, our minds are not entirely, their mind's there, yours is there. Uh, most of the people we associate with, their minds are there, but it's not the conventional wisdom in all Western capitals right now. No, um, and to be less dramatic, I would simply say we need a more rapid and more um, fair-eyed evolution in the perspective. Uh, for Russia to be able to accept, to renounce its imperial instincts requires a real revolution. Our challenges are not nearly as great as that. Uh, we could carry on doing simply what we're doing as long as we, with all of the illusions we have and our misunderstandings, we could, as we were saying in the first half of this program, just by carrying on doing what we're doing, over time, we could help Ukraine secure a uh, victory anyway. So it's not as essential for us to go through all of this. But, I, but the evolution that's required is considerable, and it's not going to happen without pressure. Right. And, and that's, that's what we're here for. Experts talking to experts in web, closed-door webinars and all the rest of it, that's not going to do it. It has to go further. There has to be pressure. There's been a lot of uh, controversy. I don't know how much publicity there was. Our Prime Minister, Kaya Kalas. Yeah. Uh, earlier this month, uh, disclosed what ostensibly was, I don't even know if it really exists, uh, a, a, a supposed NATO plan whereby uh, the Baltic states would find themselves under occupation for six months before the territory. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm skeptical about the veracity of this. And there was uh, nevertheless, 
but assume it's true. There was, um, and there has been, you know, huge controversy over whether she should have said this or not, in part because it possibly violated official secrets, but also just because it's so shocking and dramatic and broke the rules. Um, but at a basic level, I think she did the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, because it generated pressure. It meant NATO had to do something. Right. Well, right. Winston Churchill once said that the you Americans... You know, you mentioned the streams of reinforcements and everything else. Uh, there's probably not a lot of beef there yet. But the fact that we are now saying these things, willing to talk right. in these terms, and we have these new headline goals, um, that's a very beneficial change that could have come, should have come about earlier. And I think the, the kind of public pressure right. that she created was very beneficial. No, I think she did the right thing. And just, you know, as, 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 as Churchill has said about the Americans, we, we always do the right thing after we've exhausted all the other possibilities. <laughs> I, I think this can be applied to the collective West right now. Um, I think eventually we're going to get there. Right. Um, and, that, and that's maybe a, on that optimistic note, because this is a very dark program. I guess I want to close out anything you want to add before we wrap it up for the week, James. Well, you know, uh, what could I have endless supplies of bloom? You're welcome to share with me. Uh, <laughs> along with my Estonian vodka, you could share the bloom sober or drunk. It's up to you. But um, uh, so um, we're finally at the end. Well, um, what a shame, but thank you very much. Oh, no, I, I would, James, I could go on with you for hours, but I, I fear that if I do, my, my production team in Texas will uh, impose sectoral sanctions on me here in Washington. And I... <laughs> every, time, every time I speak my mind on a program like this or in public or any conference or anywhere else, I walk off the stage saying to myself, that's the last time you could feel that. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, you, you are you're you're always welcome. No, we've gone we've gone an hour. Um, it, it doesn't feel like it, but we've gone an hour. Um, and yeah, I I like I said, you and I will will can and will continue this discussion on this program and in other venues going forward. Um, but I'm mindful of the clock and I'm mindful okay, of the, the schedules fine. of my production team. <laughs> so, so on that note, I shall wrap it up. That's unfortunately all we have time for today, although I could keep going. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the absolutely magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn has been veteran Russian wa Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fe fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the must-read book, Old Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. James, thank you as always for an enlightening discussion. Thanks for staying up late for us. I know it's late there in Estonia. Brian, it's, it's still white. It's, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You get that. Yeah, that's right. I'm jealous. You got the white knights. Um, I'd also like to thank our awesome production and patient production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holbert handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 